Welcome to the Faith Cup Podcast. We are glad you are here today. May God bless you in order for you to be a blessing to those around you. What a great way to introduce Psalm 51, which we're going to be looking into today. But before we get there, I also want to uh, dismiss the kids and invite them to meet their leaders in the back of the room and head off to kids' worship this morning. Uh, and as morning, uh, and as we've been doing as our new uh, practice, they'll be joining us back at the end of the service. So parents, be ready. We never know exactly when they're going to come back, but we're excited to welcome them back so we can close our worship together. It is good to have the kids with us and to be seeking to be a truly intergenerational church. Also, I just want to acknowledge if you have prepared a gift uh, of offering or tithe for God in worship today, uh, we have the offering box in the back that you can drop that in. Or if you've given online or if you're watching online and you've given uh, during the week, we also want to acknowledge that that a gift is a part of our worship to God out of our desire to give back to Him out of the blessings he's blessed us with. So in that spirit, I just want to pray for our kids, pray for our offering, and pray for our time of looking into God's word today. Would you pray with me? God, you are a heavenly father who's the way that we're supposed to be loved. You know that we all are like little kids when it comes to our relationship with you. And so we thank you that as we... uh, appreciate and recognize and celebrate the kids among us, that that in them we can see ourselves and that we also need a loving parent to guide us, to support us, and to care for us. And so we thank you that that's who you see us as in your family. We thank you for continuing to pour out blessings on us of uh, time, of of talents, of treasure, of of things that you've given us that you want us to enjoy and to use and to be blessed with, but also to be blessed with, but also to follow your lead in being generous and to give away to be a blessing to those around us. And so we ask that you would bless all the gifts that we give to you in worship today, the gift of our hearts, the gift of our praise, the gift of our time, as well as our our money. All these things, God, are, are, are the least that we can do, just to say thank you for the amazing grace and the wonderful gift of new life that you've given us in your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. We are in our second week of a three-part series that we're calling Amazed, which is kind of a recurring series in our church. If you want to hear previous Amazed series that are looking at some of the favorite psalms, uh, you can go to our website and on the sermons tab, uh, you can do a search for the word Amazed under series and all, they'll all come up for you so you can go back and hear uh, past uh, psalms. Last week we did Psalms uh, 37. Uh, we're doing Psalms of Hope. Uh, this summer. Uh, Last week was a psalm of hope when life doesn't go the way you hoped it would, or when evil seems to prevail around you. And today we're jumping into Psalm 51, which is a psalm of hope when you fall short, when you personally mess up and make mistakes. Now, I know most of you probably don't need to hear this sermon today. So since that doesn't really describe you, uh, feel free to play a game on your phone, um, pretend you're reading a, a Bible app, because nobody's going to really know the difference anyway, right? So feel free to go ahead and do that. For the rest of us in the room who haven't got this one completely dialed in yet, 
Psalm 51 begins with a, an interestingly and a bit longer introduction than most of the other psalms, and that's where I like to, to start, and then we're going to take a, a little bit of a, a detour before we come back to Psalm 51. So 51 begins with, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Wait a minute. What? This is a, particularly what you might expect to see at the beginning of a, a worship song for church, right? I mean, for the director of music, for, for worship together in the congregation. Here's, here's a psalm about when David was confronted by God through a prophet because he committed adultery. Wow, okay. I mean, I know even people in the Bible were broken and sinful people, but you're not supposed to say the quiet part out loud, are you? I mean, in church? Yet this heading here indicates that there's this historical context to the words that we're going to, to read and the words that we will be invited to, to contemplate and to meditate on and to pray through in our private time with God this week. That's telling us that in order to fully appreciate the words that we're going to hear and, and to dive into what God may have for you and for me in this psalm, we also have to understand the backstory of what David did and where this psalm comes from. And if you know the story, it wasn't just that David committed adultery, was it? It was actually a whole lot more complicated than that. So, so even if you're familiar with the story, I, I felt like it was important for us today to, to take a little detour and go back and remember or hear maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, the broader details of what actually happened in David's life and his relationship with God. Because this header tells us that, that if we don't really understand the full scope of, of what was going on in his life, we won't understand the full scope of what we were being invited to consider and to enter into in our relationship with God. So I'm going to ask for your patience as we go back and we recount the story as we try and work our way in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And we don't have time to read all of it. We're going to read some of it, but I'll kind of walk you through the, the high points of the story, Okay. So in chapter 11, it begins by telling us that one beautiful spring day, King David, who had sent his army off to war and decided to stay home himself because he didn't really feel like fighting anymore, was strolling around on the, the roof of his palace and looking down on all the little people in the world around him. That doesn't say that, but you get the idea. And lo and behold, to his surprise, off in the distance, he sees a woman bathing and says, wow, she's beautiful. So what do you think he does? Hey, hey, uh, go check out. Say, oh, yeah, her name is Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite who's off serving in your army. So what does he do? He says, well, go and bring her to me. And so off it says David slept with her. And then what did he do? He sent her home. Kind of a, a, a royal one-night stand. <laughs> but guess what? Bathsheba comes to find out not too much later. Oops, I'm pregnant. And she sends word back to David that 
we've got this predicament. What do you want to do, king? So what does David do? He tries to cover his tracks, right? He immediately calls her husband, Uriah, back from the front. He brings him into the palace, and he invites him to sit down and, and talk, and he, and he makes all this small, how's it going in the war, Uriah? How are my troops, and how's everything faring out there? And he says, you know what? You should go home and, and, and enjoy being with your wife before you go back to war, <laughs> right? He's trying to cover his tracks. But it says that Uriah is probably being a more honorable man, says there's no way he could go home and enjoy the comforts of home and wife when all of his comrades are sleeping in tents out in the field facing death every day. No, he's not going to do that until his comrades can do that as well. So he's, he says, I'm not going home. Shoot. What do I do now? Right? I, I really want to spend some time with you, Uriah. Come on over to the palace and we'll have a feast and we'll party. And he actually gets him drunk, thinking that now for sure he's not going to be able to resist going home. But sure enough, Uriah says, nope, I'm sleeping on my mat with my fellow soldiers and I'm going back to the front. <sighs> so the next day, when Uriah head, finally heads back to war, David sends a letter with him addressed to Joab, the general of his army in the field. And can you guess what the letter said? In verse 15 of chapter 11, it put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Can you imagine? David sends the very execution letter for Uriah with Uriah to hand to Joab back in the field. How audacious can you get? But that's exactly what happened. Uriah is killed in the field, and David makes Bathsheba his wife, brings her into the palace, and she ultimately bears him a son. It says in verse 26 and 27, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, that's a very simple statement at the end there, right? But, but just in case you're wondering, it's usually not a good thing to displease the Lord. David's thinking, I got away with it right? I pulled it off. I pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. I've made my little problem go away. But God wasn't having any of it. So God sends the prophet Nathan to David with a message of his own and to try and get David to finally acknowledge the reality of what he's done, not only to Bathsheba and to Uriah, but what it's done to impact his relationship with God. Now keep in mind, back in the day, before David had become king, he was a, a shepherd, right? He spent time out in the wilds, you know, killing lions and bears to protect his sheep that he cared for and that he loved. He knew about sheep and shepherding and how important this was. And so in 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll wrap up with 13, it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. 
He raised it, and he grew up, it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Anybody ever have dogs or cats who <laughs> sleep in your bed, eat your food? They're like a member of the family, right? We know what he's talking about here. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him, because that would be the customary thing to do. If you have somebody who's traveled a long way to come and visit you, you you take one of your livestock and you prepare a feast for them. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Whoops. And in verse 13, it tells us, and in verse 13, it tells us, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I don't know what sins you've committed as you come to church this morning. I don't know what sin you may have committed this morning <laughs> or what mistakes you carry with you today that weigh on your conscience, that burden your soul. But at the very beginning of Psalm 51, it tells us that when we come to God in worship, we should keep in mind what David did as we consider the response that God had to David as we want to also perhaps try and find a way forward. See, out of the brokenness and the pain and the sin in our own lives, we too need to have hope that, that this isn't the final word, that there is a, there's a new day ahead, that there is healing and that there is recovery and that there is an opportunity to find a new pathway, not only for ourselves, but also in our relationship with God. And so it's in this larger context, which is a pretty dark and intense dramatic human story. I mean, you can watch a movie on this any day, right? I mean, this is who we are. This is the world we live in. This isn't some frantic, crazy fantasy story that we're supposed to try and build a big bridge to. We hear these kinds of stories every day in our own world, in our own lives, and sometimes in our own churches. Pastors, who fall victim to the same kind of dynamics in their own life, in their relationships with their congregants, bosses with their employees. There's so many different ways that our human nature works itself out that we, we are invited to understand that you're not unnormal. <laughs> and so we join with David in verse 1 of Psalm 51, where he begins with, with the plea, with the, the starting point as he reaches out to God after all this has happened, and he says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. 
You see, David's starting point, his, his very beginning point is to, to appeal to the unfailing love of God. Even though he knows that he's failed, even though that he knows that he'll probably fail again, he knows that God is a God who doesn't fail, whose, God, whose love never ends. God continues to acknowledge his commitment to sinful people, to you and to me, when we acknowledge our sin before him and we we lean into him to rely on his mercy and his grace as the only way out of some of the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in. David describes the forgiveness he seeks with a series of verbs, blot out, wash away, cleanse, and scholars suggest that these are all reflections of of ritual worship in the temple. And along with three verbs, he also uses three nouns to describe sin. He uses transgression and iniquity, which is immoral or unfair behavior and sin. And rather than focusing on any particular type of sin or or talking about his specific story here, he's using these different terms to suggest a more comprehensive confession that is needed, not only for his own life, but for for the life of his people that he is now sharing his testimony of his relationship with God. And he's creating an open space of confession that we too are invited to consider whether or not we are willing to enter into. See, it's not just one thing that David is confessing and asking forgiveness for. It's an overarching experience of God's mercy and forgiveness that he recognizes he needs in his life, in the past, in the present, and that he will need in the future. That's why he continues in verse 3 by saying, For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. See, David not only knows what he's done in this current chapter of his life, what he has done continues to weigh heavily on his heart. That's what he means by saying, my sin is always before me. He recognizes that it's not something that he can ever escape in his own power. He's he's committed the sin. He's done the deed. He's stuck with the consequences, and there's no hope for him now. And so more than just being sorry for what he did to Bathsheba or what he did to Uriah or what he did to his reputation among his people as a leader and and the reputation he had for being a man after God's own heart, David recognizes that all of these things at their deepest level are an offense and a breakage in his relationship with the God who created him. And so he comes before God saying, okay, God, I'm willing to take an honest look at myself in the mirror. And David recognizes and he acknowledges that the true nature of his sin is ultimately measured by what is evil in God's sight. 
The goodness of God becomes the measuring stick that helps us to define where we need to recognize our shortcomings and our failures as well as those things that we can aspire to and that God wants us to pursue. So he says that God is right in his assessment of David's sin. He's justified in his judgment of David's behavior. And David also acknowledges further that that isn't something that just accidentally happened to him one day. (laughs) As if he had lived his whole life perfectly to this point, and in a completely out-of-character slip-up, kind of out of the blue, in, in the heat of the moment, it just I just happened to take another man's wife to my bed, get her pregnant, try to cover it up, and have the guy killed. Right? David is acknowledging that sin is a constant bedfellow in his life and in our lives as human beings. It's not every once in a while sin comes up and we say, oops, sorry, God, and we move on with our life of mostly perfection. Sin leads us to make decisions that put us on a path where it can often get worse and worse and worse, and we can dig ourselves into a pretty big hole that we feel like we can't ever get out of again. And so David proceeds from a much deeper perspective that that the challenge that we face as human beings is a much longer-standing sinful nature that we have to wrestle with every day. And if we're not careful and if we're not living under the light of God's love and, and bringing God's word to bear, we can find ourselves very far afield from where we thought we were going very quickly. And so what David is recognizing and what David is seeking isn't just a one-time forgiveness for an oops mistake that he made. What David is ultimately seeking, if we really dig down into the depths of this psalm, is that he's looking for a radical reformation of his heart and his soul. He's looking for a change from the inside out. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Here in, in reverse order, he uses the same language where he's seeking for God to cleanse him and wash him and blot out his sins, which again are all symbols of, of ritual worship that were familiar in his day. But see, here he's acknowledging from his own experience that the reality of the consequences of sin in his life, and he's inviting us to see that, that the same might be true for the consequences of sin in our own lives. That when we try to ignore it and we try to hide it and when we carry it ourselves long enough is that the weight of carrying the consequences of our sin can be a soul-crushing experience in life. And we find ourselves in a position where there's nothing we can do to change it. There's nothing we can do to get out from under it. And so what happens is it just pushes us further and further away into unhealthy behaviors and ungodly patterns in life and further and further away from God so we believe that, man, there is nothing that God can do to ever save me. I don't deserve God's love. There's nothing that I can do that that is ever going to get me back to where I used to be or to where I want to be or where I wish I could be. And see, this is the big temptation that we have to face and recognize, is that it's in these moments of life 
that we may begin to think that there's nothing that God can do and there's no hope anymore for me. That the shame and the pain are too great to ever really be able to have hope again. And the reality that I think David is helping us to begin to see if we're willing to, to go there with him and to acknowledge, as Tammy shared, those deeper places in our hearts that often uh, we, we keep behind closed doors and locked key that, that we don't let anybody know about. In fact, we don't even often like to pay attention to them and we kind of pretend that it doesn't exist. And we cover over it with a, a lot of ways of distracting ourselves from ever having to deal with it or talk about it or be real with it with God or with one another. And that truth is that what we feel in those deepest places within ourselves, it's as if in our very bones, David says, at the very core of our experience of life, the core of who we are, we're being crushed beyond our human capacity to endure. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. And David's being willing to say, me too, I've been there, I know what it feels like, it's not easy, it's painful, and there's no quick fix. The kind of soul pain that is so deep within us that no one from the outside can ever really see, right? It's the silent killer that's stalking humanity. Like a spiritual cancer, it lives within us and it eats at us from the inside out. And we know it's there and God knows it's there, but we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to, how to deal with it. We don't know where to go. But David recognizes that God is not like any other human being. God is not like any human being, right? God sees what's on the inside of your heart. In my heart, God knows what's behind the locked door. God knows what's hidden in the basement corner where there's no lights anymore. And God knows the pain that we carry. God knows how hard it is. God knows how soul-crushing it is to live with these things that we've carried for so long that we don't know how to release or to get over and, and, and that we have just assumed that it just becomes a part of who we are. And he wants us to know that in spite of all of that, we need to recognize that God is a God of unfailing love. No matter how far you think you've gotten from God, no matter how dark your life has gotten, no matter what you've done, that you think that God can't redeem you and bring you back from the brink and, and, and shed light and love into your life and give you new hope and new joy and a whole new experience and a lease on life. Psalm 51 invites you to say, if there's hope for David, there's hope for you. If there's hope for David, there's hope for me. And really, brothers and sisters, that's a huge part of what Christian community is supposed to be about. As we share our own personal testimonies, it's not a testimony of how good we are. It's a testimony of how faithful God has been in offering you grace and mercy when we've messed up, right? Amen. Testimonies of God's unfailing love and his enduring and grace in our lives means that if you knew my story, you'd know that if there's hope for Kurt, there's hope for you. 
If you knew the stories of the people sitting around you in this room, right now, take a look around you, (laughs) right? If you knew their story and there's hope for them, you know there's hope for you. The hope we have is to join with David and to join one another in Christian community who who are simply a people who recognize that we need to throw ourselves on the mercy and the grace of God and His love that never fails, remembering that He's a God of great compassion and His desire is to be able to teach us wisdom in that secret place. That deep inner place that often no one goes that no one knows except you and God. God knows. You see, the only hope we have is for God to enter into that secret place, for us to invite him in to those deeper, darker places within the core of our being that we often hold at arm's length from him, from others, and even from ourselves. Because it's only when we allow God to enter into the secret place, to enter into our own private, personal world, to descend from heaven and come down into the world that we live in, and can we often say our own personal, private experience of hell, that God is able to then begin a whole new creation project within us. Is this starting to sound like the gospel? Does it make you think of Jesus? You see, in this, in so many other ways, we can see in Psalm 51 and throughout the Old Testament a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus as God's plan to redeem your life and my life from the pain and the brokenness and the evil of this world that he knows that we suffer through. And his invitation is to receive the restoring and the recreating mercy of the grace of God that begins in the deeper parts of those secret places when we're willing to be honest and transparent about the brokenness and the sin in our lives and our need for God because it's then that we receive that forgiveness and a whole new life begins to spring from a tiny little seed of God's love in the soil of your heart and mind. Remember when Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John 3, chapter 3, verse 3? He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're what? Born again. Now we, you know, that's kind of become a Christianese phrase. Are you a born again Christian or are you not a born again Christian? Because if you're not a born again Christian, you might not really be a Christian. And so you really have to know whether you've been born again or not born again. It's starting to sound a little bit more like Nicodemus and the Pharisees than what Jesus was really trying to talk about, right? In Psalm 51, it's this very kind of interior restoration project that God is inviting you to let him do within your heart and within your soul that begins in those deeper places of your life when you give control to him, when you allow him to become the master and the controller of your life because he's a, a heavenly father. He's a God of love and mercy, not a God of judgment and vindication and punishment. That's not what God wants in his relationship with you. And so David says it this way, starting in verse 10, maybe the most famous part of Psalm 51, right? Create, create in me 
a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Brothers and sisters, when we come to the point of humble contrition before God, recognizing that there's really no other salvation, there's really other no, no other solution. It's because we recognize that we can't rescue ourselves from this deep inner brokenness and pain. And what we cannot change in ourselves is the very thing that God has offered to take from us and to do for us and to work within us if we're simply willing to give him permission to love us in the way we need to be loved. Like David, we need to, God to create a new heart in us, a heart that is pure, not because we're pure, because we're so good, but a heart that's purified by the amazing grace of God and his unfailing love that allows us to, 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 to weather every storm and to overcome every sin and to know that even when we make mistakes, God is going to be there to dust us off and pick us up and put us back on the right path as we move forward to the day when his final salvation will come to fruition and we, we join God. God in heaven with all the saints and there will never be any more tear, right? There will never be any more crying because the joy of the Lord's salvation will be our strength and the light of God's son will be our light. That's the, the vision that Revelation gives us, that all of these promises in the Bible are, are leading us on the path to say yes to Jesus, to begin to experience that joy and that light in our lives and in our relationships starting today. And it's in this discovery, it's in this realization of this gift that God has provided for us that comes through His Son, Jesus Christ, who, who sacrificed His life for us on the cross so, so that we could come into relationship with Jesus and, and God without having to pay the penalty and the price for our sins, that we begin to recognize that it is God's unfailing love that is the only foundation upon which we can build our lives. That even though it's completely undeserved and it's completely unmerited, yet it is at the same time completely unfailing and completely never-ending. And that we find ourselves ultimately not only having a change of heart in our lives, but we discover that God has changed our heart. I love the song that we sang last week, Reckless Love. It's the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. It's that love that reminds me, not only is my hope found in Him, but that in Him there truly is hope even for me and even for you. I want to invite the worship team to come forward as we wrap up for today and just want to remind you as they come of the words in 1 John 1, 9 in the New Testament that it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Men and women, that is the invitation 
to the new creation work that God wants to do in you. And if you're willing to come to the Lord today, if you're remembered the, the old rugged cross and the gift that that provides for us of freedom in Christ, to, to be open and transparent and honest with God, God promises that he will be open and transparent and honest with you about how much he loves you and how much he will care for you, and the work that he wants to do in you if you simply just say yes to Jesus and let him begin to take control in your life. Now, it means we need to say yes and follow him, right? We need to allow the Holy Spirit to become the, the guide in our lives as we go to God's word in prayer and as we reflect on Psalm 51 and other psalms and as we pray through these passages and as we gather with God's, spirit, spirit, God's, spirit, God's people in God's spirit and we share our testimonies, right? Of not about how good we are, but where God has shown up and been the salvation for me and the salvation for you that we encourage one another to say it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter how far you've got, it doesn't matter how intense the pain is that you're in right now. There's hope, and there's healing, and there's love, and his name is Jesus. And he's just waiting for you to say yes to him. God doesn't expect you to change your own heart. In fact, he knows you can't. He wants you to not only trust that he can change it, but he wants you to want him to change it. And that makes all the difference in the world. Would you pray with me? Holy God, forgive us for all the ways that we too struggle with the impact of sin in our lives. You know what we've done. You know where we've been. You know that this isn't some momentary or, or, or short-term issue that we struggle with. This is something that we, too, have been struggling with since birth. And God, many of us here today have, have never really discovered the way to, to fully be, be washed clean and set free from the weight and the pain of, of our own mistakes and the sins that we've been carrying around for, for maybe years. And today is the day where you have cut through the clutter. You've shown your light into the darkness of, of, of our storage closet. And, and you recognize that, that, that we're possibly willing to, to open that final area of our lives to you. That, that inner place where you want to come and begin your reclamation project. Your refurbishing of our lives from the inside out. And so God, I pray that each one of us today would be, be ready to say yes we say, yes, Lord, do your work in us. Create in me, Lord, a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew an upright spirit to sustain me. And we will thank you and we will praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith Cove Podcast. Our music was written, performed, and produced by Adam Johnson. For more information about our church community, visit faithcovesumner.com. Until next time!